was on a very dangerous roof with Merv, and I saved his life multiple times. No, we were, we were harnessed up in some pretty sketchy spots, and uh, it's always a good time on the roof uh, with Merv, and we were kind of discussing what we're going to talk about here this morning, and, and we're going to deal with conflict this morning from a biblical context, and Merv, in his creative ideas, was like, we should, we should really like stage some kind of a conflict right as this was starting. And I was like, that would be so good, but I can't be part of that because I'll get rattled and, something, and then I'll forget what we're going to do. So then I was going to get Ernie because those of you who know Ernie, that doesn't bother him any. And then Ernie didn't show up. So Ernie, I'm looking at the camera right now, still in Vancouver. So pretend that Merv and Ernie got in some big conflict and you're really uncomfortable as we start. Good? All right. What we're doing this morning is you can turn to Matthew 18. This is, uh, this is actually a seminary assignment that I, that I had to write and then now preach uh, and pass off to my seminary professor uh, dealing with a class on relational conflict. And, and this is just a reality of life for all of us is conflict is everywhere. Conflict just exists. And uh, we can try and escape from it all we want. And, and many of us, depending on our personalities, will run from conflict at all costs, perhaps, sometimes. Uh, And some of us, hopefully the minority of us, will actually seek that conflict out just to try and poke the bear a little bit. And and so we want to deal with this. What does the Bible teach about conflict? How should we address conflict? What should we learn from conflict? Because what we're going to see is conflict isn't necessarily bad. It's just uncomfortable. And it can be painful but it will help us in our process of learning. Uh, like I said, it's a reality of life. Why is it a reality of life? Well, simply this. We're, we're different people, and when we come to Banff, we're different cultures. We have different upbringings. We have different worldviews, different personalities, different everything, then all blended into one little community, and sometimes, in this case, one small church. And so we view things differently and we have different levels of uh, passion on certain areas that you've heard me say this before is why do the prayers only pray and why do the doers do and why don't the doers understand the importance of prayer and why don't the prayers understand the importance of doing? And I think I confused myself just now. But that whole concept is we go, why, why aren't you as passionate about this as I am? Because we just assume others are. And so we have all these differences, and then we come together, and we come together to worship Christ, and as we seek to celebrate his name, if we look at the differences, we can find conflict real fast. We can get very petty, in fact, in our differences, if we're not careful. And the beauty of what the church is meant to be, and we see this all through the book of Acts, and the ladies are are about to explore this in their Bible study, and you're going to see this over and over again. Different people coming together, putting their differences aside and recognizing we are here to celebrate Christ. We are here to bring him glory and honor. And often that means I have to get out of my own way and put the needs of someone else above my own so that I can celebrate that God loves them and God wants them to be in relationship with him and he wants them to grow. And usually that means that we have to talk a little less, at least about what we want, about what we might think is more important. That being said, that's the goal of the book of Acts, this unity within the church. However, if you've read through the rest of the New Testament, what do you see? A lot of conflict in churches. 
There's different racial problems existing between the Jews and the Gentiles. There's different cultural issues of, well, you worship here and we worship here and you say that and you do this. And, and what Paul predominantly in the New Testament is writing is this desire, especially in the book of Ephesians, that we would be united in Christ. That together with all of our differences and not in spite of them, but because of them, we can show the world, look, man, we can, we can move past all these differences. And we can get along and we can worship together and we can praise the name of the Lord and we can love each other effectively. And that church relationship then is meant to declare to the world the hope that we have in Christ. So that's the goal, but we see in the New Testament there's conflict. We know in our own lives there's conflict. If you look back on your faith journey, the churches that you've attended, the people that you've interacted with, there's conflict all throughout those years. And so the goal of this is to try and see what does the Bible teach me about how to deal with this conflict effectively so that I grow through it, so that the person that I'm in conflict with grows through it, so that we mature and that, not, not so that we no longer have conflict, but so that we can declare to the world that despite our conflict and maybe even because of our conflict, we can find resolution, we can elevate the name of Jesus. A reminder quickly, it says this in Romans 12, 18. Paul writes, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. If possible, so long as it depends on you. There's that reminder. Is that we actually control a little bit of this. We can exacerbate that conflict real easy. Or we can step back and we can do everything in our power to live at peace with others. But there's a reminder in that that a conflict involves at least two people or two parties or two groups. And if we don't seek to desire the same thing, which ultimately is the exaltation of Christ, then we're going to be in these conflicts. So we'll do everything that we can, but that doesn't mean that conflict will just sort itself out. And in fact, it might exacerbate. So let's read from Matthew 18, 15 to 20, just some simple verses. And then as soon as we're done that, you can flip back to Matthew 7. We'll get there in a few minutes as well. So Jesus says this, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Jesus begins by saying, if your brother, though our experiences teaches us not if, but when your brother. When your brother sins against you, and, and we could flip that as well and remind ourselves that we are not always the victim. It's not always other people sinning against us. In fact, it, it, I learned this real quick. Well, I say I learned it real quick. I'm probably still learning this, is, but I noticed it very early on in my marriage, right? Is all of a sudden two people come together in one household. And you have different ways of thinking and different ways of doing things. And you always think that your way is right. That's just how we're wired. We assume that the reason that I do this is because this is the right way to do it. Uh, the joke that Shayla and I always do with the premarital counseling 
is, is something that it wasn't really an issue in our marriage at the beginning, uh, except that it was just something we noticed. I grew up, good Mennonite home, right? So there's no Mennonites here anymore. They all moved away after the summer. Uh, where does the Kleenex box in your house go in a good Mennonite home? Anybody know? No, on the, on the fridge, on the top of the fridge. That way you always know where the Kleenex is. It's, all, it's got a designated space. Everybody knows. Shayla did not grow up in a good Mennonite home. Where does the Kleenex box go? I don't know. <laughs> Wherever. And, right? And, and then, so we noticed this pattern in our marriage where I would put it back on the fridge. <laughs> good, I've done my good husband deed today. Right? No, I'm just kidding. That's bad. Uh, put it there, and then all of a sudden I would go, and it's gone. And I don't need Kleenex often, but when I do, it's a problem. And so... That was too much info, I apologize. Uh, so, so now all of a sudden there's this, where is it, where isn't it? And, and this just, I don't even remember how long, but this just took place for a while. Until all of a sudden we had this conversation and we realized that there was potential for a conflict brewing about Kleenex and how unimportant that truly is. And we started to realize, okay, the ways in which we have grown up, we're a culture, or we're a byproduct, excuse me, of the culture in which we grow up. And we assume that other people have grown up the same sometimes. And we need to remind ourselves we're not. And so that's just a little, little silly example. And I'm not suggesting that Shayla was sinning against me by moving the Kleenex box. I'm just saying that conflict can come out so easily out of something so small and so silly. Jesus, is, his view here is something far more significant than that. And so he says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him. What's the next word? alone. Why do you think we're supposed to do that alone? I think conflict is simply this, is the less people we can involve in a conflict that aren't, that aren't necessary to become part of that conflict, the healthier that conflict will be resolved. The biggest problem that we see in, in when we're dealing with marital counseling or something like that is that some, one thinks they're right, the other thinks they're right, and instead of dealing with that with two of them, they try and grab support and they ask other people, man, I'm right in this, aren't I? Like, my spouse is being crazy. There, there's no need for that. Like, and we start to gather people and rally other people, and so all of a sudden there's 17 other voices being involved when it never needed to go there. It simply needed to be go to the person who has offended you alone and seek resolution there. Uh, commentator Leon Morris noted something for me here that I just kind of skipped right over. He says this, the word is go. The person in the clear should not wait for the sinner to come to him. Notice that. I just read right over that. When somebody offends or hurts me, had they've sinned against me, it's actually my responsibility to go to them and to show them what has happened. So I actually have to initiate that the hurt was done against me. That's my responsibility. So often we think, well, that person hurt me, it's their responsibility to come to me, but we're assuming all kinds of things in that. One is that they even know that they hurt us. How often have we hurt somebody with our words, only after the fact realizing what we said was offensive. It's just the reality. Sometimes we don't notice. And so what Jesus is saying, don't let those things fester. Don't, don't just, just take this passive approach of they'll come to me when, when they're ready to come to me. It, things don't get dealt with then. Let's just deal with it right when it happens. 
Because if we can do that, it, there's no guarantee, of course, but the principle here is that it won't grow into a disproportionate amount of problems. You'll be able to deal with, you, you know, you said this, and this hurt me. Can we deal with this? Rather than waiting and waiting. And this is something that I learned early on in, in my marriage as I was trying to figure out this, like, when do we deal with those things? And, and I had this kind of assumption that, well, the, the less you bring up, the less conflict you have. So if I can just deal with any time that, that Shayla might have said or done something that hurt me, I, I'll, just, I'll just not even worry about it and I'll just move on. And that would be great except for one problem. And what is that problem? We hold grudges as people, don't we? And we shouldn't. We know that. And we probably try not to a lot of the times. But then all of a sudden, another conflict comes up, and I found myself saying this in my marriage a lot, is going back to something and pointing and saying, but this. And poor Shayla would be caught flat-footed going, I didn't even know that was a problem or an issue. And now it's being brought up as ammunition. That so easily occurs in our relationships if we don't deal with things the way that Jesus has asked us to do this. Notice what he says. Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens, you have gained your brother. Notice Jesus doesn't say he will. But if he listens, if you can find resolution in there, it's done. You can move on. You haven't included a whole bunch of other unnecessary people. You haven't made the problem bigger than it needs to be. It's done. There's two things, though that I want to focus on. You can flip back to Matthew 7 for this because we're going to read something here. We've read it before in the summer already, but we're going to do it again. Is when we are going to go, where we're going to take that responsibility, I'm going to go and we're going to point out to my brother or sister, this is what has happened. There's two things we need to do. First of all, we need to slow down in our minds and we need to consider, is this, was this misunderstanding? How serious is this offense? The, Meaning, when we slow down and when we think clearly, things will be done much more rationally. In the heat of the moment, we say things we regret. We say things sometimes we don't even mean. And so we need to slow down and take a moment. The second thing, and Jesus tells us this in Matthew 7, verses 1 to 5. I'm going to read this and we'll explain it real quick. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. We talked about this a number of weeks ago, but I don't want to assume that either you remember or that you were even here for that morning. But this passage of Scripture is so misused and misquoted to just do that first verse and go, you have no right to judge me. You don't understand where I've been. But that's not at all what those verses are talking about. There's two aspects. One is it's saying ultimate judgment lies with God, and so you have no right to condemn somebody. That right is reserved for God alone. So be very careful how you talk about other people. But then throughout the rest of it, there's the assumption. Look at verse 5 again. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. He actually is encouraging us to enter into the mess and help other people. He's not saying, don't go into someone else's conflict because you got your own stuff to worry about. He's saying, first, deal with your stuff. 
and then go and help. We, this is the truth of the churches. We need brothers and sisters who will come, I need, who will come to me and show me where I am not acting in accordance with what I say I want to do. And if everybody goes, no, no, I don't want to do that because I got my own stuff to worry about, how are we ever going to grow? How are we ever going to be called on the things that we need to be called on so that we can be convicted, so that we can repent, and so we can turn back towards Jesus? Sometimes God reveals things to us in our hearts, in our moments of quiet time with prayer, but often what we see in the Bible, and it's taught very clearly, is that the primary agent is you that God will use in the life of another. Because you are part of the church. You are that brother or sister. And, and so we are called to be part of this. So when we think about, well, well don't judge me, we got to go back to Scripture. What does it actually say? A reminder that I have no authority to ultimately judge someone else. He, his life or her life lies in God's hands and he alone has that authority. But when a brother or sister in the church does or says something that goes against what they say is I'm actually told, first evaluate my own heart so that I don't come with a sense of judgment against them or some kind of way of building myself up. And I think too often we do this is we go and expose somebody else's flaws in order to build us up because it makes us feel better about ourselves. That's the exact wrong thing. Rather, first in humility we go, God, what in my heart needs to be fixed? What things are there that shouldn't be? Would you reveal that to me and then would you give me the strength to go and to help this brother or sister to see the error of their ways that they might come back into a healthy walking relationship with you? There's no assumption there that somehow I'm super spiritual and they aren't and I'm there to help them. The assumption is that we're all in that same journey. That we all have the same problems. And we all need each other to rally around one another and to help each other. And that's not only in the sense of encouragement, but also sometimes calling each other out on things. Now again, doing so with humility is key. So let's go back to Matthew 18 here real quick now. So Jesus says, first, first do it alone. First try and keep the circle as small as you can. But, verse 16, if he doesn't listen, well, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by evidence of two or three witnesses. And what's really interesting here is um, sometimes we, we read that and we go, this kind of feels like we're just bringing people to gang up on that person. But first of all, if we go back to the Old Testament, the original readers would have heard this. Deuteronomy 19.15 says this, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two or three witnesses shall a charge be established. In other words, and, and God knew this right from the beginning, is that if things turn into a he said, she said situation, what happens? Nothing good. And so the idea that Jesus is telling us here in Matthew 18 is if someone is clearly in the wrong and they've done something wrong and you've brought it to them and they've, been ref they, they've refused to repent or to re get re restoration done in that issue, then you bring one or two others. Again, keep that circle small. But bring them so that they would see and that you could show them, here's what's happened. Here's what's been said. Here's the process that is being taken. Are you willing to repent of this? Because we see the importance in your life for the repentance of this issue that you would be brought back into relationship with Jesus. 
is this is the goal always to keep it small. Because the smaller it is, the less confusion can happen. How many of you remember uh, back to your, I don't know, preschool or kindergarten days where you played the telephone game? And nobody? One, two, okay, so here's the telephone game. We sit around in a big circle, and one person gets to decide a sentence they're going to say. Let's say I'm going to pick, and I'm going to say cheeseburgers are my favorite food. And then what I do, I don't tell anybody this, I just think in my head, and then I whisper it into the person beside me ear without a microphone on, so nobody hears. And then they go to the person beside them, and they whisper it into their ear, and it goes around, and you get 30 different preschoolers giggling and laughing about this, and what happens by the time it gets back to the person who started it? It has nothing to do with cheeseburgers anymore. It has to do with someone's smelly feet, right? Like the whole message has changed one word, one phrase, whatever it might be at a time going around. And that's the problem is when we involve many people, then, oh, did you hear that this person said? Oh, did you know that that person does? And all of a sudden the rumor mill starts and the things that we think we're there to deal with are not actually the things we have to deal with because we have to deal with all kinds of things that aren't even true in the first place. Isn't that the most difficult part of any conflict? Is trying to undo the stuff that wasn't done in the first place, but that was perceived to be done? And so keep the circle small. Take two or three witnesses that every charge may be established by the evidence of them. If he refuses again, Jesus understands that that doesn't mean that this person is going to repent of this. He says, tell it to the church. If he refuses even to listen to the church, Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. This is where it gets very, very uncomfortable. And where we might even look at this and go, Jesus, this is unreasonable that you would suggest that we do this. Because I think two things. One, again, we're, we're a byproduct of our culture. I'll explain that in a minute. And secondly, we have very rarely seen proper and good discipline enforced within churches. What it's not saying here is that you come before the church and you parade and you just tell everyone all the bad things that that one person has done in the name of going, man, this person's got to be kicked out. They should not be part of this. What's Jesus' goal in this whole thing? Restoration. So when you walk up and you just expose everyone's sin in front of everybody, how is that a restorative process? Secondly, we're a byproduct of our culture, in other words, this, is we live in one of the most individualistic cultures in the world. So we just assume that's how we interpret. That's the lens through which we view many things. And especially when we start looking at the church in the New Testament, we start to see a very different way in which we're supposed to live. The church is actually what? Your family that you live with, that you minister with, that you do the messiness of life with, and that You have nothing that you can hide from because they all know your secrets because you know their secrets because you're one family working together for one goal. That sounds terrifying, doesn't it? And yet, there's probably nothing more freeing than not having to hold in and hide our secrets. And so when we think about it in this context is we go, well, that doesn't seem fair. My stuff is my stuff and you should have no right to talk to other people about that. Well, that wasn't the goal. The goal was that they went to you and said, here, this is what's happened. And, and, and as this has been laid out, the individual said, no, I'm not going to repent. I'm not going to do what's right. I'm not going to fix this. And what Jesus is saying to us is that your spiritual maturity is so important to him that he will not let you get away with it. 
He will not let you get away with sin. He wants to deal with that sin so that you would be restored into a healthy relationship with him. The goal is not, let's get all your ugliness out there so that everyone can condemn you. That's sometimes the way that we look at it. But what Jesus is saying is, no, no, no. If you would only repent sooner, then we wouldn't even have to go there. We wouldn't even have to bring other people involved. But the church's primary response is the exaltation of Christ. And we as brothers and sisters, our role is to go before our community and declare Christ. And how can we do that if we're living a life that goes against what Scripture says? So if somebody is in the wrong, they need to be corrected that they would be brought back in and understand and repent. Jesus says that even sometimes people won't listen when it becomes a, more of a public matter and when the church is pleading with the individual, would you please repent? Would you see the seriousness of what's going on? Jesus knows that that always isn't the case, and so he says, treat him as a Gentile or a tax collector. Now again, clarification. What Jesus does not say is go around and talk ill about that person. Walk around the church and gossip about them. He's not saying anything like that. He's saying they need to understand that the way in which they are living excludes them from the privileges of being part of that church family. And it's no different than our regular families. If one in our family goes against everybody else and and wants to do harm and hurt, there are losses of privileges in that family. That's part of growing up when we're a kid, isn't it? Maturing. Understanding what we are able to do, what we're capable of, the responsibilities that are placed in front of us. And when we don't fulfill those responsibilities, there's consequences and losses of privileges of that. And that's what's happening here. That's what Jesus is trying to get them to see. So that, and again, we talked about this when we were in 1 Corinthians back before the summer, when Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 is dealing with this issue, that they would see the severity of what they're doing and how it's affecting others so that they would be brought back in in repentance to say, I see, I see the error of my ways. I need, to, I need to confess these things. I want to be back part of this family the way that God intended in the first place. And so we then, when we think about all these things and we think about the steps that are involved in conflict and in resolution, we go, that's a messy journey and I don't really want to be part of it. But the reality is, is if we choose not to be a part of it, will it go away? Will that, have, you, have you ever been part of a conflict, a serious conflict, where just by ignoring it, pretending that it didn't exist, it actually went away? It usually just affects all these other areas of our lives. And it usually causes us a great deal of stress and anxiety. To the point where we walk into a room and we see that person, we go, I don't talk with that person. And we leave and we walk out again. How can we claim to follow Jesus Christ when we cannot love our neighbor as ourself? That's the idea of what's happening here. That's the importance of dealing with conflict. Now, again, it's real easy for me to stand up here and say all these things. I hate conflict. And sometimes I turn and run at all costs. And it always bites me in the butt. Every time. If we could understand the importance of dealing with conflict in a biblical way, Not everything would be better because sometimes these situations aren't resolved properly. But I think we would be able to live at peace. We would be able to have way less stress and anxiety in our relationships. Because I'm just going to choose to love that person. 
I'm going to love them and I'm going to show them the error of their way, not because I think I'm greater or I'm better or I'm more important, because I'm not, but because I want them to know that God loves them and God wants them to be in a healthy relationship with him. And I need you to call me in those moments where I'm not living that way. Let me just hit these last couple of verses because often they're misused as well in, in different contexts. And so I want to clarify. In verse 18, Jesus says uh, the same thing he said just two chapters earlier in 16, 19 to Peter about authority. Jesus uses the same idea of the authority with all of his disciples, not just the 12, but all of us. The idea is this, that we are the church, we as the church, excuse me, have a unique responsibility to exercise Christ's authority within the three that are gathered in, sorry, within the church for the health of the church. So you have been given unique authority to step out and to deal with conflict, not because you are capable, but because God's spirit is within you. And God has said, this is the role. This is the, this is the duty of those within the church. And then when we get to verse 20 and we read things like, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them, People so often assume that that is talking about some spontaneous church service that happened when three or four of you happened to be together as, as Christians and you went, oh, we are the church. Well, that's true, but that's not what Jesus is saying here. That's not his point. His point is that when two or three are gathered in my name with the authority of Christ to deal with discipline, I am there in the midst and I will bring resolution and healing as long as both parties are willing to admit that. That's the context. And so is it, is it wrong to say, well, there's three or four of us here, we're the church, let's celebrate? Not at all, but that's, that's so often used to be like, well, I don't have to go be with the church because I can just be the church with two or three other people, and then I'm okay. Jesus is saying, actually, in the body of the church is where you find everything that you need for this. You'll be corrected, you'll be loved, you'll be encouraged, you'll be challenged, and you'll even be disciplined because we need all of those things, and the church has the authority to do that because it's been given by God. Again, not all conflicts find their way to resolution or reconciliation. But the goal needs to be that in humility and with the authority of Christ, I'm going to go to that person who has offended me and to see if we can deal with that effectively so that it can stop right there, that conflict can be dealt with to the glory of God. And that those outside of the church, if this conflict has grown and it's become messy and ugly, that those outside of the church, that when they see, man, those two people are talking together again, and they've forgiven one another, how could they possibly do that? And we point to the scriptures and we say, because he loved us first. Because he sent Jesus, and Jesus died on the cross for our sins, that we might be able to forgive one another. So that the outside world looks at it and goes, I need that because I'm carrying around so much baggage, so much anxiety, so much pain, so much fighting. And we can go, there's a better way. Do I always live in that way? Certainly not, and I wish I did. But the reality is, my heart is filled with all kinds of stuff that shouldn't be there. And I need the Holy Spirit's conviction. And I need your, con your concern in your care, that you would come to me and say, Greg, you said this, or you did this, and I don't think this is right. Praise the Lord if you have the courage to do that. May we all be willing to hold one another up. As we say all the time in this church, as you are called to be an ambassador of Jesus, to represent him well. We need each other's help to do that.
So as we seek resolution in our conflicts, may we humble ourselves and recognize that you have been given the authority as the church to deal with these things. That we would come back together, that we would reunite one to another, and that we would declare to the nations that no differences, no amount of conflict can stop us from worshiping Jesus together. Let's pray. God, as we, as we read even these, just these short verses here, God, I'm just reminded of the unique challenge that you have given to us and, and the authority that you've given to us as the church. That in love and in grace and humility that you would bestow upon us a desire to go to others who have wronged us and to resolve those conflicts so that you would receive glory and honor. God, that's just amazing. God, when we enter into conflicts with other people, even when we think we are right, would we put aside our differences and would we seek the unity, the common good? Would we seek to lift your name up? Would we not desire to be right for the sake of being right? Would we be concerned with one another's spiritual growth, that we would become more like Jesus, that we would become the ambassadors that you have created us to be, that we would represent Jesus Christ to the nations? And so God, give us courage when we need to deal with conflict, but give us the humility and the grace that we need to deal with that conflict in the proper context. God, for each person here this morning, I know that each of us have conflict in our lives, relationships that are estranged, people that we have hurt or that have hurt us, people that have said things, whatever it might be. And so God, I pray that as we read these verses here, as we're reminded of them in the coming days and weeks, that we would have the courage to step out and be biblical about these things, that we would desire restoration, that we wouldn't look at the church as some place we gather together once a week to worship, but that we would see each other as a family where we love one another, we care for one another, and we help one another towards maturity. God, thank you for all that you are doing in our lives. We pray that we would trust you with all of these conflicts and that we would seek resolution. We love you. We thank you for all that you're doing. Amen. Thank you again for joining us this morning. Um, remind you, there are snacks. Christine is going to serve you from the back. Feel free to visit and, and uh, meet.